You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Resensinski and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to give you as much of the nurture and encouragement as the turtles got back in the 1980s, as Jerry puts it. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your appetite to learn more and diving into the back catalog and listen to all of the past episodes that you may have missed. Like last week's episode with Jerry, in fact, where we got into a bit of a disagreement, friendly of course, about risk allocation for single trade, whether you should keep it static or if you can have rules to vary your risk per trade. And I invite you, as always, to go back and check this out if you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. It's quite an interesting conversation with Jerry. Mark, Always great to be back with you. How are you this week? How are things? Are you um, seeing some spring? You are seeing some spring. It's uh, I'm not in Massachusetts today. I'm out in, in Indiana for my daughter's graduation from university, and it's getting a little hot and humid. But I had to go through the Ohio Indiana farm country, and so we're seeing tractors out in full force. They're planting soybeans, and corn. And it was mid-80s Fahrenheit yesterday. So it's starting to warm up here in, in the United States. Yeah, that's great to hear and always great with some celebrations. Today, in fact, is actually my father's 88th birthday. So we're also, although I'm not there, but my family is also celebrating something which is good through this period of restrictions we've been used to. We've got a great lineup today of topics. But before we get into those, let me give you just a little bit of a brief market wrap. Of course, headlines of a crash in the crypto world dominated the financial press this week. And it was a good reminder that prices can't continue to go up in a straight line and that with high returns come big drawdowns. In the case of Bitcoin, at the low this week, it had dropped more than 50% just over a few weeks period. But to me, the most interesting thing that came out of this week after the crash, in fact, in the crypto world was the video from Fed Chairman Jerome Powell about the Fed's view and involvement in CBDC. Clearly, they are moving much faster than most people thought, and they will actually publish a paper on this in the coming weeks. Of course, stories about China and banning Bitcoin and all of that also fueled this week's price action. Speaking of the Fed, the reverse repo activity continues to grow and with Friday's operation topping 369 billion, it's the largest to date. The enormity of the operation has begun to attract some attention and as mentioned in previous uh, podcast episode, it does not look like the operation poses any systemic risk, but it does pose an oper operational risk for the money market funds. If they are being pushed to lend at zero, they will be forced to waive their management fee entirely. And most already have reduced their fees to close to zero. And I suspect that it may be time for them to start lobbying the Fed to raise this rate so that they can generate some rate of interest for their investors and the management fee for their businesses. 
also separately, despite the unanimous vote of leaving policy unchanged uh, at the last FOMC, several Fed presidents have suggested that they are closer to supporting uh, a taper of the secondary market purchases. That leads me to believe that while Powell says that they are not close to discussing tapering, they have probably already started the conversation. He'll probably want to suppress the conversation as we move into less liquid summer months, but I suspect that this activity will be picked up again in the fourth quarter. Another interesting thing from the world of central banks, by the way, this time from the German Bundesbank, which in its most recent monthly report predicts that measured inflation, and then I quote, could temporarily rise to 4% in the coming months. A figure not seen since 20 years in the common currency and headline consumer prices across the eurozone rose to 1.6% from a year ago in April, up 0.9% two months prior and uh, near the European Central Bank's 2% inflation target. Now, I want to bring you in, of course, Mark, just to see what has caught your eye and and attention in the last uh, few weeks since we last spoke. Well, there's only one big issue that we have to discuss right now, and that's inflation. And uh, I think that a lot of people have been talking about it, but they haven't delved deep into some of the issues and then how that might affect trading and particular trading for trend following. And so I think that's something I think we, we should talk about today because it's now the the meme of on everyone's mind as investors and we're seeing it all across the headlines. Yeah, no, I think that is a uh, definitely an important topic we'll de- and we'll for sure dive into that. Before we do so, let me give uh, everyone just a quick update on terms of performance. It would have been nice, though, to hear how things were on in the Bitcoin space this week because I saw Moritz tweeting that his system had been stopped out. I don't know whether that's the same for Jerry, but of course, that's really where the action has been. But on our side, um, we did continue to see a little bit of a correction in performance, mainly due to lower commodity prices in grains and softs in the energy sector, with maybe the exception of corn and coffee, actually. Copper in the middle space also had a, a tough week, so to speak. But then on the bright side, we had lean hawks. They broke out to uh, new highs this week, and that was the best performing market on our side for the week. Equities and currencies were slightly positive, uh, whilst fixed income were mildly negative. And our trend following program is still up a little bit for the month, even though we've been going through a couple of weeks of correction. The trend barometer was flat for the week completely, actually, from Friday to Friday. It closed exactly at the same level at 39, which is a little bit soft. It's certainly neutral, but it's a bit on the soft side. In terms of the volatility space, equity markets were quite on a roller coaster the past week, like we saw the previous week. The VIX index went higher early in the week and reversed its move by midweek to close nearly unchanged by Friday. And if you look at the commitments of traders report, it shows that dealers' long positions have been reduced compared to previous weeks, but they're still pretty sizable and could once again be the reason why the VIX in May, the May settlement price, was around 25 or a little bit above that on Wednesday morning, whilst futures traded mostly around the 24 level. Maybe another thing of interest is that there are has been a rise in the S&P put option volume during the last couple of weeks, and that moved the equity put call ratio close to the highest level we've seen in the last 12 months. 
Um, this could be read as a good contrarian sign for future equity returns, but the increased put activity doesn't usually happen when the S&P is near all-time highs. It's interesting to follow how this development goes forward and if we're getting another leg higher or if the current strong bull trend is coming towards an end. And of course, with the uncertainty over the inflation, which we'll talk about, and the Fed's action, the overall sentiment so far in May has come down to the extremes, which is definitely a better environment for equities. We've gone now 137 days without a 5% correction in the S&P. And looking at history, at least after a run like this, the upsides for equity is usually rather limited. We did see also a correction in performance in our volatility program this week, and that is now down a little bit for the month so far. On my side, my trend-following model portfolio also had a down week, and it's now down about 3.23% for the month. It's still up 11.13% for the year. Performance this month, it's really lost money in all three groups of models. Uh, Group 1, classical trend, down 1.29%. Group 3, down 107 And Group 2, down 87 basis points. The sectors doing the worst are really grains. No, equities, certainly, sorry. Equities certainly doing uh, most of the damage, pretty much all of the damage. Then grains and precious metals. The best sectors so far are base metals and currencies. Single market activity, worst markets are DAX, NASDAQ, and the SPY. And at the uh, top, we see Canadian dollar, uh, Swiss market index, and gold. And in terms of the trading this week, the system started the week by getting out of some short DAX for the faster moving models. And later, it went uh, long in the DAX for the classical trend following models and also went long silver pound, euro, or at least adding to positions, I think is probably more correct to say. And then later in the week, it exited some grain positions, a spy position, and added a bit to its SMI position and a couple of the currencies. And then finally, the risk to stop level in terms of riskiness of the portfolio, it would lose 11.95% if everything got stopped out on Monday, which is up a fraction from last week. 11.56 was the number of last week. And there was about 20 trades for this uh, for this week. Now, Mark, something I didn't mention you to in our preparation, before we move on to today's topics and questions, in fact, I want to go back to a question you posed in one of our earlier conversations. I can't remember if it was last time or the, or, or the or time before. Namely, what question could you ask to find out? If you could only ask one question, could you ask to find out if a manager was discretionary and systematic? Do you remember you asked that question? Yeah, no, we talked about uh, robots. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we got a suggestion from Danny, in fact. Danny is in Canada and is part of the community. And uh, he sent this this comment over. He says, I'm continuing to listen to each and every episode of your excellent podcast. In a previous episode, Mark asked how one could distinguish between a systematic and a non-systematic investor using only one indirect question. I thought about this for a while, and here's the question I came up with. Do you ever have more than one reason to enter a trade? A systematic investor will only only ever have one reason to enter a trade, i.e. where the rules of the system met or not. On the other hand, a a discretionary investor will at least occasionally have multiple reasons to enter trades, such as sentiment, volume, chart patterns, fundamentals, whatever it might be. That was his comment. 
That, that's actually a good answer. I, I like that. Now, I guess the, the question comes in, what happens if you have a model that has multiple factors? And those factors might have different weights, but whether you're in the market is a function of multiple factors or inputs into a model. I will say that the answer is great because if you're a trend follower, for example, you would say the reason why I'm in the market is because of a trend. I think the key here is that if someone has to develop a narrative, a story to explain what they're doing, then they're probably going to be discretionary and they're not systematic. And we've talked about this before, is that trend followings and systematic managers in general are boring. And they're boring because there is no narrative. There's not a deep story that you could tell. So the great part, and and I've had investors or, or managers come in and describe their system or describe what they do. And discretionary guys have a deep discussion. They'll explain the market. They'll talk about what uh, Chairman Powell is saying. They'll say, here's what companies are doing. And it's all about the narrative. Well, the systematic person will say, in the simplest case of a trend follower, why did you buy this market? He says, because it's going up. Why did you sell this market? Because it's going down. So I think that uh, systematic is much more focused on simplicity and fewer words than the discretionary uh, trader. Absolutely. Luckily, we have quite a few words, despite being trend followers at heart. (laughs) We have quite a few words to share on the podcast. Let me get on with that. We have another question, actually, that I'll start with today, just to switch it up a little bit. This time, this is from Fernando. And Fernando writes, thank you for your great podcast. Most systematic traders, including me, are patting themselves uh, on the back these days, given the nice year-to-date performance. In these bright days, some of us might forget that no system will do well in every market regime. Sooner or later, rough days will come. Thus, I have two questions for you guys who have been trading for more than 30 plus years. First, does it get any easier to stick with your system in rough days after trading for plus 30 years? Second, what are some of the techniques or ideas that help you uh, not only stick to your system, but also sleep well at night? in rough periods. So Mark, since you're a little bit older than me, so you can probably say you have more experience than I do. It's never easy to deal with models that are seem to be failing in bad times. And because right away you start questioning, is there something broken with the model? And you then have to go back under your underlying assumptions. You may look through the model. You might say, is there is this time different in terms of the environment? Has the regime changed? So I don't think it's any easier, even after good times, to then face some bad times with model performance. And I, I guess I'd say from experience, you'd say that there's a euphoria when things are going well. And there's a morose view that you have when things are going uh, poorly, and that's natural. The difference between very good traders and not-so-great traders would be is that can you ride through the euphoria and the morose behavior and still stay relatively level-headed? And this is, we'll call it the behavioral bias, because you're... I always view models are like a thesis if you've ever gone to graduate school. Your thesis is never as good as you think in the best of times, and it's never as bad as what you think in the worst of times. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I would say from my point of view that I agree with you. Actually, it gets a little bit easier, but it doesn't get easy to go through difficult times. And I think for a couple of reasons. One, I feel a lot of responsibility for the clients that I deal with. So I feel their pain when we go through these periods of time. And often, of course, they will have not as quite as long as an experience with trend following. So it might, it may be their first or their second or their third sort of drawdown. And so that that is tough. Uh, and I fully understand that. Secondly, I think that the, the challenge can be that drawdowns often look a little bit different. And you can't help think what what is going to happen to turn this around and suddenly things are going to pan out well. And so for me, at least looking back at a track record, and, and fortunately, we have quite a long one to look back at where we certainly have been through tough times. And that to me really gives me a lot of confidence. And the way I then switch my thinking is looking at a track record like that. And and it could be most of the larger trend followers, of course. But when you look at those track records, I start thinking about, okay, do I believe that the investments that I hold in these strategies will be worth more or less in five years time or in 10 years time or in 20 years time? And when I look at history, because it is easier oddly enough, to predict performance when you look far out in the future rather than tomorrow or next week. We have no idea or next month what's going to happen. But if you look out sort of 5, 10, maybe not even 5, but 10, 15, 20 years, the return profile gets much more stable. And that's where I take a lot of confidence from. And and then that kind of helps me through these difficult times. But it's never easy. I would say, though, I don't have any really sleepless nights about it anymore. That's probably something you learn with with time. The one thing I mentioned, I think that when I talked about there these the good times at bad times, is that that there may be the impression that there's this cyclicality between euphoria and and your negativity. In reality, is that most trading programs will be in drawdowns. So I think that we've looked at uh, you know, long-term trend-following programs that I've been associated with. Is that it could be upwards of 80, 90 percent of the time you're in a drawdown. It could yeah. be a small drawdown, but you're in a drawdown. And a lot of you know, and if you're trading a market long only and that has a bias to be upward, upwardly biased, like a stock market, you're used to seeing new highs constantly occurring. Okay, because as the market goes up, if you're just long only, you're going to hit those highs. Speculative markets and trading markets, you're going to be different in that most times you're going to have these punctuated large returns. Then you're going to see these periods of continued drawdown, 1% down, 2% down, 3% down, and then you'll be punctuated with a new high. And so in general, is that you have to be used to poor performance when you look at a drawdown chart for most of your trading. Yeah, two things on that, actually. One is, I'm pretty sure I saw a study uh, or an article not that long ago that took the example, I think one of them was Amazon, the other one was Netflix, and they looked at how many or how big a percentage of the trading days in the in those uh, two stocks' lifetime, they had been in some kind of drawdown, i.e. underwater from the most recent high. And actually, it's a huge percentage, even though we look, we think about them have just gone up and up. But actually, it's 80 or 85% of the days wasn't at a new high. And, and that kind of obviously uh, somewhat similar to 
how we always most of the time in some kind of drawdown, and which is also why you shouldn't try and time your investments with trend following. You just need to hold it at all times. And the other thing I would just add to this question is, I also think it come, it's, it's different whether it's a sharp, deep, quick drawdown like February of 2018 or whether it's one of those slow burning, it can still get deep, but it's just a really long drawdown as something that I would say our industry has been experiencing in the last few years where the drawdowns wasn't the worst drawdowns, but they were certainly long for many managers. So that's a different sensation I think you get when you go through that. And I also think it's a different way clients react. It's not necessarily fear, it's more impatience and starting to doubt the strategy rather than if it's a quick, uh, a deep one, then they might get a bit more scared, but at least they can see some kind of recovery coming back fairly quickly. Right. I think that a grinding drawdown is actually more difficult to deal with because you're probably thinking, is the f- is there a failure with my model? If you have a quick drawdown that is, let's say, regime-related or event-related, you could say, well, if there's an unanticipated event, then it wasn't that there was a mild model failure, it was an event failure. And then it's an issue of risk management. So we'll say, steep, deep drawdowns would be risk management related because it's quick. And did you get out quick enough? A grinding drawdown, you sort of say, then you're going to be more suspect that the model has problematic. And those are probably harder to deal with because then you say, should we make adjustments to the model itself? Yeah. And actually, I know we're going to talk a little bit about momentum crashes related uh, also to Bitcoin uh, in a second. But actually, it will be interesting to see how this might actually also play out in that space as well, because a lot of investors in crypto have never really experienced other than very sharp, quick drawdowns, and then it's off to the races again. I don't, I can't really think of a, a really long drawdown that they've experienced like we have in the trend-following world. So it's, it'll just be interesting because you could already see from the narrative and what's what has come out in the last forty-eight hours in terms of comments and blame and what have you in that space to see that people are reacting emotionally to some extent because maybe this is not something that they have experienced before. We'll get to that in a second. The first topic you brought up and that you already mentioned when we um, had the introduction here is inflation and trend following. So I'm excited to find out where we're going to go with this, uh, Mark. Okay. Well, first, I, I may have mentioned in our podcast in the past is that I love a quote from William McChesney Martin, the former Fed chairman from the 50s and early 60s. And he said, inflation is a thief that steals in the middle of the night. We could say, I'll contrast that. That was the thought process for Fed governors in the 50s and 60s. And now what we're saying from Fed officials is that inflation is something that you just have to accept because it's not really painful, but something we have to accept because that's the only way we're going to be able to return the economy to normal. And in reality is is that I, I think of inflation as a distortion of prices, and this is what we want to talk a little bit about trend following, but I call it the three Ds. There's three Ds associated with inflation. It causes people to make delays in their decisions. 
it causes distortions in prices, and it destroys value. And the problem is, I think that a lot of people, when they start thinking about trading markets and trend following, they'll say, oh, if there's a higher inflation environment, then because CTAs and uh, trend followers will often have commodity exposure, they're going to do well. And I think that's uh, it could be true, and it is likely true, but I think that it misses the real point that inflation distorts prices as a signal. And when there's distortions of prices as a signal, then you're going to have delayed behavior of consumers. There's going to be delayed behavior of producers. And that's going to create an environment where prices can then follow trends. Okay, so that we'll call that, that's the D of delay. The second is, is that the D of distortion is that when you think about inflation, okay, there's a general component of inflation, and then there's still the local component of what happens to prices. But let's look at a commodity market. Let's let's say that we look at corn prices have been up since the beginning of years. Have been and all agricultural prices have been up since a year ago. Okay, is that inflationary, or is that related to the local supply di- uh, dynamics of corn, soybean, or wheat? Is the increase in copper is that because of inflation or is it because of, of local shortages of copper available in let's say china and so what happens is that inflation distorts the price process when it's very low and stable let's say at 2% then it's the impact of distortion is limited when we have this large 4% shock to to CPI, then the distortion gets larger. And so the question always comes in is that if there are distortions, what is the reaction from the people who play in these markets, consumers, producers, and traders? And I think that if anything, it causes, as we say, delay in decision-making. And then ultimately, is, is, is that's going to cause trends in prices. So it's not that you have commodity exposure, it's it changes in behavior that really is causing the problem. And it, it's interesting, and I think that when you look at the third D, which we call destruction, inflation is actually eats away at our wealth. And that means we have to be more active in our behavior to be able to offset this, uh, this eating away. And when you think about it, when people say, say current inflation is transitory, when they say transitory, are they saying that, well, we're now at 4% and they're going to say it's going to go back to 2%. If we were at 4% inflation, we lost our wealth. I don't think that the Fed officials are saying transitory is that it went up 4% and now it's going to go down 4% and at some time later, prices are going to reverse. So we're going to get back all of what we lost. What they're just saying is that you're going to have this one-time shock. We've had wealth destroyed. And now we're going to go back to 2% or just around above 2%. And now you're going to then only see your wealth destruction at 2% instead of 4%. So transitory to me or temporary would mean that there's a potential for reversal. And we can see that people are now feeling the destruction of prices when we look at, for example, consumer sentiment that came out from the University of Michigan, consumer sentiment was actually lower. 
And I think what it's telling us is that people are seeing the bite of higher inflation destruction effect. And what we're actually seeing, if we go back in history, we're seeing a lot of the terms that we saw before in old textbook macro books coming back. So we're starting to talk about cost push inflation. We're start talking about demand pull inflation. Now, when was the last time anyone really started to talk about that in a sub 2% inflation world? We're now talking again about the misery index, which is just a combination of unemployment plus inflation. The misery index is at now double digits. When was the last time anyone ever talked about the misery (laughs) index? That's a pull from the uh, history of the 70s. So if people are beginning to feel the misery index, then you're seeing that impact the effect of inconfidence. But let's talk maybe a a second about what this means for for trading. A couple of things that that, that jump out is at first is that an inflationary environment, because it distorts prices, is actually going to cause more uncertainty in the price action. If there's more uncertainty in the price action, then we're going to say whether it's hedgers, producers, consumers, everyone is going to sort of change their behavior And that allows for, if you'd say that there was a more random price behavior, there's now more autocorrelation in prices. If there's more autocorrelation in prices, then trend followers have a greater opportunity to pick that up. And that's what we're saying. I think that's what we're going to be seeing. Yeah, I agree with that. So it's quite interesting. I'm in the camp when I think about inflation that I actually think that it's going to show up. Finally, it's going to show up in the numbers. I think it's been there for a while because I can just look at what my own expenses are doing. And that's certainly not new that these things go up. But it depends on what kind of expenses you have, whether you have children or not children and all of those kind of things. But so I, I think it's been there for a while, but it hasn't really shown up in, in the numbers. And there's this wonderful uh, chart that I think I, I can't remember if I saw it on Twitter a little while ago, but there was this long-term chart where you saw prices of different uh, things, whether it be housing, education, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, even the Big Mac index were going higher by, by by quite a bit over the years. And then you saw the official CPI number and it was just way below any of those costs that we all have in our lives. So I think that it, it, it is there. What I'm concerned about, and this is not new, I think a lot of people have expressed this concern, and that is just how portfolios are prepared for inflation. I think a lot of portfolios have been built to cope with deflation. And if we get inflation, I don't think that they're necessarily well positioned for that. And that could have a massive effect on pension funds and other things, et cetera, et cetera. Now, when I look at inflationary periods, we don't have much to go from because there are so few trend followers who have been trading during inflationary periods. But fortunately, we are actually one of them because we started in 1974 and from 1976 to 81, that was certainly an inflationary period before they started to see a decrease in that. And those years, in particular 77, 78, 79, were incredibly strong years based on the trend following that we were doing back then. It's obviously no guarantee that it's going to play out the same way in the future. So in another way I think about what you said is that I think if we do start to see inflation and we start seeing higher interest rates to at some point to reflect that, I think it's going to cause stress in some of the fluffy part of the markets, whether it's corporate debt or whatever it might be. 
And I think it's just going to bring lots of economies out of balance. Uh, and I think the Feds are going to, or the central banks in general, I think they're going to lose control of some of the things that they have been in control of recently. And maybe it's not completely coincidental that someone like Jay Powell comes out and talk about digital currencies and all of that stuff. Because maybe he's also a little bit worried about what things, what it, all of this is going to mean to currencies, to the dollar, to interest rates, and et cetera, et cetera. We know, of course, that some of the arguments is that with a digital currency, you have more control, especially if you end up having people banking with the central bank and so on and so forth, like I think the plan is in China and all of that stuff. Who knows? So I think it's very interesting. I think it is one of the most important things to get or at least to think about. Is your portfolio prepared for an in return of inflation? But I have to say, and I do think you can find a lot of people right now who are in that camp of fearing inflation coming back. But I have to say, and actually this was one of my picks for later in our conversation in terms of good resources, I did listen to the latest episode of Macro Voices with David Rosenberg, and he is definitely a sharp cookie, and he did not fear inflation whatsoever. He had many good arguments for why it could be temporary. I'm not going to use the word transitory because I think the Fed and other central banks will always use words. You're not quite sure what that really means. And I think you pointed that out exactly right, that who knows what that really means. So you can find people who still can find ways of arguing that actually, yeah, we might see a pickup from a very low level, but there are so many other things that's going to push price prices down or keep them moderate that it's not going to be an issue. And then you have people like Lacey Hunt, where I started listening to his latest interview with uh, Daniel DiMartino Booth. I didn't get through it, so I don't really know exactly, but he's been a deflationist for decades, I think, and he's got it absolutely right. And I'm not sure whether he's changed his mind just yet. So it's a big topic. It's a big question. And I think you can find people with good arguments in both camps, really. And you can be in both camps at the same time, because I half joke uh, with a lot of people, I said, temporary, we don't, we'll only know whether we have temporary inflation or transitory inflation after the fact. So I won't know whether that Powell and the Fed were, were correct about transitory inflation until a year from now. And you can have a situation that we have a large spike in CPI right now. And we go back to something that might be two and a half percent. Okay. Which, which in some sense you'd say like mm, the Fed would say that, yes, that's a quote unquote a success. Now that doesn't change the fact that when we go back to my three D's, you still had delayed decisions. You're still going to have distortions and you're still going to have destruction. I think that you need to be spe specific about your terms. This is that we're not talking about a hyperinflation. We're not talking about that, that we're going to have double digit inflation. I think what we're going to see is we see higher inflation right now. It probably uh, a lot of it is caused because of logistical issues. So if you look at dry freight rates, if you look at air cargo rates, if you look at just any type of a logistic transportation issues, they're causing an increase in prices across the board. Okay, What this does, of course, is it starts to change people's behavior and perception about inflation. And that's and this change of inflationary expect, expectations is where what you're really worried about. And when you think about it is that the reason, one of the reasons why we didn't have inflation over the last decade and a half is because companies did not believe that they could raise prices and have them stick. 
right? Because they could say that there are other competitors who would be underpriced me. I can't be able to raise prices because they won't, that someone else would come into my market and take my market share. If people start to believe that inflation is actually here, you could start to pass along higher prices and they'll start to stick. And other if one leader in an industry raises prices, others would follow and also raise their prices as opposed to saying, I'm going to try to take market share from other companies. And this gets back to also the whole is issue of cost and demand pull and cost push inflation. This is, is that we're seeing some of the costs come through the economy where we haven't seen it per se in labor, but we have narratives that suggest that labor and prices and wages are going to have to go up, especially in the service sector. And that's going to have to translate into higher prices in, in restaurants, for beer, for all, all of our daily activities, because wage wages are going to go up. What's going to have to happen is that even though we have earnings that have been fairly strong, forward earnings that still look fairly good, is that if you have higher costs, is one of two things. You can either raise prices on the far end to keep your margins the same and keep earnings up, or you're going to see, I'm going to have to keep prices the same, bear the cost, and see my earnings shrink. Okay, And it's up to companies. That we're, we're going to see whether companies are actually going to pass on costs and whether they think it's going to be able to stick in order to maintain earnings. But when we talk about distortion, delays, and destruction, I think that this still leads to a lot of opportunities. For example, if you look at some of the inversion of many price curves, so we're in backwardation. And I think that if you look at backwardation periods, is that we're in one of the extremes in backwardation across many markets. This is that I just looked at this morning, it's a $4 one year out for WTI crude, it's a $4 inversion and backwardation. Okay, you look at it, it's about a dollar for corn. This is that's significant. Okay, and that's causing a distortion. And then when you think about it, that's an example of temporary price shocks. So, because generally we've seen contango in oil prices for a very long period, we thought we were awash in oil. Now we have a, we have a fact that there's shortage. What that actually does is now create a lot of people now can be able to trade a commodity indices for a profit, right? Because when the markets were in contango, is that if you just bought a long only portfolio of commodities, you always lost the role. So a lot of those index players left the market. Now with a strong backwardation, we have long only passive investors coming back to commodities. What is that going to do to price behavior? Given that they're not as large as equity markets, that's going to create an opportunity for trends. So, so I think that this is the way traders are starting to think now. They may not incorporate it into the models, but this is what trend followers are going to be looking for. They say, if I have a passive nonprofit maximizing player in the market that didn't exist before, that's going to lead to an opportunity for me to make money on trends. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that maybe when maybe people are not expecting hyperinflation and et cetera, et cetera. But I just wanted that that reminded me actually that Michael Burry, the guy who was part of the big short and the movie that portrayed his success shorting the uh, housing crisis and all of that stuff, 
he still runs this Scion Capital, I think it's called, and his positions were was uh, published recently for the end of Q1. And actually, as far as I, I'm aware, okay, his biggest position is massively long puts on Tesla. So that's he's obviously got something going on there with Tesla. But actually, most of his other positions are options of some sorts, all betting on much, much higher interest rates. And here, I think from some of the commentary and tweets, et cetera, et cetera, we're not talking about just a little bit of inflation that he's expecting. So that will be interesting to see how it all plays out. I couldn't also help noticing that one of our previous guests on the show, Mike Green, has changed company and is now working for a company where they've created the first, uh, I think, ETF where you can pitch your interest, your long-term interest rates exposure through, through an ETF, meaning you buy that ETF and what they do is they buy some kind of, I think, seven-year call option on, on, on treasury yields, which normally private individuals can't do because you have to have an ISTA and all of that jazz. But here they do it and it allows people to get in if they're really worried about interest rates going up uh, significantly over the next uh, seven years or so. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I've certainly heard from uh, about people who I would say have, have pretty good track records that um, that they see something much bigger in the inflation space than than maybe most people do. So I have an open mind about that. Yeah, and we're seeing this in terms of the behavior of, of markets. And when, when I lock, talk again about inflation as a, as a distortion mechanism, we're seeing more volatility in prices. And it may not see in the same as the same volatility in terms of like the move index or VIX, but we have volatility in the fact is that you talk to a lot of investors. Do they believe we're at a 4% inflation, 2% inflation? What does it mean for the second half of the year? And you're starting to see, especially in options markets in the fixed income side, a tremendous amount of volume of options being traded. We're seeing huge volume trading and different trades being put around what the, the Fed's Jackson Hole meeting, which is down in August. And when you see that there's more uncertainty and there's more volatility, and we'll say specifically uncertainty, there's a, a dispersion of opinions across investors, then you're seeing more activity in the wings of the distribution. So now we're seeing, so that would mean that you're going to see more option activity deep out of the money and into the money. Because let's say if you take a deep out of the money bet, either for on the high side or low side, small changes in that distribution could lead to significant gains or losses on that option portfolio. And that's what they're betting on. If I, if I could buy some cheap options that are out of the money under the idea that there's going to be a big spike in interest rates, and you know, what's my downside? Limited. If I'm right, I'm going to make multiples of my money. And that's what we're seeing going on. And this is oh yeah no absolutely and this is yeah. obviously is it I've talked about this a, a lot is is that when we think about trend following as a divergent trading versus convergent trading you know, so I say trend following it looks for divergences or mean fleeing activity okay convergent trading or say that we're going to be moving back towards equilibrium and it's based on the idea that there's always a stable equilibrium 
unexpected increases in inflation, more dispersion in inflation, more distortions from inflation is naturally going to lead to more divergent trading because you're going to have more views of uh, what might happen. And at the very least, you'd say, what are the strategies you want to avoid? You want to avoid things like carry, where you're just clipping your coupon for bonds or mean mean reverting or stable strategies. And at the very least, you say, I want to hold more divergent strategies that if there is a big dislocation to higher inflation, or even if it goes back to a deflation environment, so let's say that there's some reversal of all of this, you want to have something that can take advantage of this. Yeah, no, I'm quite optimistic a trend following going forward. And I think betting on change, which is really what divergent strategies do, yeah, is seems very logical if you just look at the world and what we're going through right now and all the tension you find and all of that. Speaking of change, your next topic that you wanted to talk about was headed momentum crashes. So, of course, immediately I thought of Bitcoin this week, but I'm not sure where you want to go with this. So I'm going to let you lead the way here. Well, there, there's been some research when they look at momentum risk premiums and they say that you're getting paid because there is the potential for crashes. But when you say when there's strong momentum or strong trends... Why do those trends occur? It's usually because there's more people on one side of the market. There's uh, so there's a consensus of opinions so that they're all moving in the same direction. In fact, that's what a trend follower likes. They like the idea that everybody is now thinking the same or they're starting to wanting to build positions or they're viewing that the market is headed in one specific direction. So now... The, the idea when you have momentum is that you you have we'll call it uh, you know decision clustering okay so everyone's clustered in their thinking everyone's clustered in how they've made a decision now what happens if there's a new piece of information that uh, that sort of is contradictory to that decision cluster it may cause everybody to change their opinion very quickly and everybody starts to head for the exits at the same time. So you have a potential for crashes. So exactly what makes trend following very attractive, the idea that you have clustering of opinions, everyone's thinking the same, which causes the trend to occur, then it actually is that creates internally the reason for why there could be a large losses in the future, because then you could have a potential crash. The perfect example would be Bitcoin. We've seen recently in all the cryptocurrencies is that we've had a tremendous amount of decision clustering, a tremendous amount of view that this thing is going to the moon. Everybody wanted to be buy into it. And so, so we've seen tremendous gains since the beginning of the year or in the last year. Then all of a sudden, this is that whether it's for tax reasons, different view, uh, views, decisions or the opinions in the market changed radically in a very short period of time. Whether it could be uh, Tesla not accepting Bitcoin, I don't know all the reasons, but there was a change in opinion. And all of a sudden you had a massive crash in the market. So we'll say, if you like momentum trading, you like trend following, 
you want to have the clustering of decisions and clustering of opinion at the same time is that you should expect that there's a greater likelihood of a crash. And another example would be lumber. Lumber has had a, a big reversal because it said there was going to be no lumber whatsoever. All the trees are gone. There's nothing. That, and then all of a sudden, this is that high prices create the solution to high prices are high prices. Is that all of a sudden we're finding more lumber? The people are changing their behavior. We have a crash. If you look at agriculture the other week, we had a big move up in soybeans, corn, wheat. All of a sudden, this is that people started to say, wait a minute, everyone's planting an awful lot of corn. Now that we've got the planting intentions and the acreage, we're sort of saying this, that maybe we might have more corn than what we thought. Next, you have a crash. So we have to live with crashes. If you're a trend follower, we have to accept it. Now, the question is, how do you solve it from a model building perspective? And in some sense, I say that's the reason why a lot of trend followers and a lot of systematic managers will use stop losses. When you think about it, is this is that, and there's been mathematical papers that I've looked at and I've talked about uh, stop losses that really you don't, you shouldn't have. If you have a very good model and you understand the behavior of prices and you model price behavior, the mathematics properly, you don't really need a stop loss. I'd sort of say you need a stop loss because things go wrong. And if you have these crashes, you want to have some mechanism to get you out in case your model happens to be wrong in the very short run. And I think that a stop loss is something that you have to accept if there's momentum crashes or the, uh, the chance of momentum crashes. Yeah, when I hear you talk about that and obviously putting in to, you know, in terms of trend following thinking, I've mentioned many times on this podcast, and I know that some of the other people on the podcast don't agree with me necessarily, because of course you could say that, well, the entry is the most important thing we do. Sure, I agree with that, that we need to, the entries first, but I've always felt that the exit part of a trend following model perhaps is the most important in terms of setting us apart from uh, our peers, because it, in a sense, often, if not always, dis decides or determines how much of the trend we're able to capture. I think of it as entries is something that almost regardless of what system or type of trend following you use, you tend to get in more or less in the trend at the same place. But I find that there is more variety in terms of where we are getting out. Now, I know risk management is another part, which is obviously very crucial, that also uh, plays a role, and of course, market selection and all of that. But for whatever reason, I've always felt that really good exits where you are able to capture as much of the trend as possible, nothing is perfect, of course, but if you can improve that side of your system, I think you can improve trend following overall without adding markets and all of that stuff. I, I think that exit and risk management defines your personality as a trend follower. I think you're absolutely right. This is that if, let's take a simplest, so let's say you use some form of moving average in, 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 in a very simplest case. It could be a short-term moving average, you could take a long-term moving average. The entry is you know, it's, it's, that defines a little bit who you are, but your personality, what makes you unique as a systematic trader is how you handle exits and how you handle the risk management. Because when you think about it is that 
even when, and I've looked at systems where you say, uh, I don't put any stop losses and they look pretty good, but then you have these drawdowns that I put in a, uh, a stop loss and all of a sudden the performance gets worse. Okay. But I lose some of the, the worst drawdowns, but the problem comes in when you look at these stop losses and drawdown characteristics is, is that I get out, but then when do I get back in again? So it's first is that there's the exit, but then the exit sets up what are the conditions that's going to lead right. to the next entry? And this is yeah. what makes a system and a complex system is that I start out and I say, okay, here's where I'm going to get in. Then I have a stop loss that tells me to get out. But here's a perfect example for Bitcoin. I have a trend that's up. I have a huge reversal. Now I've got stopped out. Now, when do I, and the market has come back a little bit. You know, so you had a reversal after a lot of people get stopped out from a trend follower's perspective. When do I get back in? Because it looks like now I have a brand new trend that I just got out of. Should I take a pause for a week? Should I get right back in? And these are the define the personality. And as I mentioned, it's just that Bitcoin is speculative markets and steroids. It says that you get 30% down in one one day. But you know, the question is that if you had a, you have the crash, you have risk management, you have now, for example, a stop loss. But now that what do you do the next day going forward? And those are the really tough questions when you're building systems. Yeah, and you make a good point, right? That in in some ways we can't really look at just one part of the system because it it all is it's all tied together. However, when we do build the systems, we do look at each part of the system in order to to get it to build it. And so this is what makes something that is relatively simple in its concept building a trend following system is in its concept not very difficult there are a few choices we need to make but and but once you start doing it it gets a little bit more complicated than that and this is also why there is uh, a difference between uh, performance and and actually uh, I had to do a little bit of uh, research this week on the uh, SockGen C trend following index and so I was looking more closely uh, on the 10 managers who are in that index and even quote unquote seemingly similar trend following managers, there are huge dispersion month by month in the returns. And so this is exactly what those points that you mentioned, that's how we reflect those in returns, because we are not we are not equal, we're not similar in those choices. Sometimes it's works out better and sometimes it works out a little bit worse. And one way to describe this is that there is a difference between models and systems okay i can build a trend model okay but that is not a trend system a system right. is the integration of model entry model exit risk management any other features that build that are combined together to be able to generate profit a model will just give you indications, but it's not a system for generating profits. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. One other thing I just want to mention, I just found it quite interesting. Obviously, we, when we talk about momentum crashes, it's hard not to think about Bitcoin just this week, not because it's not because it's Bitcoin, just because it had a, lots of headlines this week. 
And I can't help just throwing it out there and and maybe I'll get some negative comments on that. But I do find it extraordinary how someone like Elon Musk, who has declared he's got, what, a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, is allowed to send that market's up and down with tweets and diamond hands and what have you. I really don't understand where the regulator is in this, but that's just my personal opinion. Now, one thing that I found very interesting by coincidence, wanting to listen a little bit to the commentary from that market, which of course is not really my specialty, but I did come across someone who had found a uncanny a relationship between the price movements of Bitcoin in the last few months and what is known as a Wyckoff distribution pattern. So essentially, Wyckoff lived many years ago, I think in the 1800s and early 1900s. I think he died in early 1900s. But anyway, he had written about how big players play the markets and often how they play smaller investors in the markets and so on and so forth. I'm not going to go into all the details here. People can Google Wyckoff uh, distribution and crypto and they'll find all the details. But anyway, this young guy had found one of his patents and basically could match it completely to what had happened in Bitcoin. And basically, conclusion is that there are some really big players even though it's meant to be decentralized and not being able to be manipulated or controlled. But clearly there are people who are doing this at the moment and setting itself or setting the market up for this crash that we've just witnessed because this was published three weeks ago, so long before the crash. But he was basically describing how it was setting itself up to be ending in some kind of sharp downward move through the phases that you have. So I just found it very interesting. And yeah, I don't know what else to say about it, but people should um, go and see it. We've already been going for a, a, an hour. <laughs> and so I wanted to just go through the list of things that you wanted to bring up. You have something called up-tempo and trading. You have recognition, prime decision-making, inference maps, thinking about crowdedness, uh, market efficiency, persuasion and decision-making, and carry business cycle and cross-sectional currency trading. Those last ones were some topics you had brought up uh, to me a little while ago. Yeah, what are the things you want to dive into? I guess we're going to have to do this again. <laughs> I think the one thing that I was uh, writing about this a while ago is, is that that your trading behavior has to match you know, your personality and the tempo of the market. So, for example, is, is that a, a long-term trend follower is following a different tempo than a short-term trend follower. So they're going to be looking at different characteristics. And so you have to match the systems that you have with the tempo of the market that you're trying to assess. And this is sort of a military term. And this is it. What's the operation tempo? Do you have the infrastructure that's appropriate for the tempo of the operation that you have? So obviously a short-term trader has to then be focused in on intraday behavior. He has to look at the open, high, low, close in a different way than the long-term trend follower. And I think that you have to say that the amount of resources you have to apply to your model and your system is a function of the tempo that you have in the market itself. And I think that's an important part when you're building systems or when you're dealing with systems is that there that your level of expenses and the level of focus you have to have has to change with the tempo that you're trying to assess in the marketplace. But part of 
when I've looked at the other issues, for example, when I think about decision making, is that, and I use the term recognition prime decision making, which is part of a group of work on naturalistic decision making by authors such as Gary Klein. What they do is that oftentimes is that people talk about trading intuition and trading intuition is associated with your ability to recognize certain events to act upon. For the systematic manager and who is a trend follower, the recognition priming is based on trend. And we talked about inflation is causing delays, distortions, and destruction, and it distorts signals. It's hard for you as a fundamental analyst to figure out what's going to happen to prices when you have the distortion of inflation. A trend follower can make it easier because he's a recognition-primed decision-maker. He's saying, I don't really care whether it's transitory inflation or a long-term inflation. All I care about is that prices are moving higher and they're above the trend, so therefore I should act upon that. And so and sometimes in a very confusing, complex world, in a very uncertain world, sort of using recognition primed cues can be an effective way to make good decisions. Yeah, I want to pick up on one thing you said. I'm pretty sure this is what Jerry would have said. So I hope if he's listening to this on his treadmill, he's not going to drop off when I say (laughs) this. But I think I've heard him say that, no, this is not about finding a trading methodology that fits your personality. We know that trend following is the best way of trading the markets long term. So you just need to fit your personality to trend following. I think there's some truth to that, right? Because if we all deep down were to fit our trading to our personality, we probably wouldn't choose trend following. It's not a particular easy or comfortable strategy to be in. It's pretty hard and and so on and so forth. We would probably rather go for the uh, straight-lined, smooth return type strategy. That would be easier to stay with. So I think he has a point when he says, no, you're looking at it the other way around. You simply have to accept that this is the best strategy. And therefore, if you want to achieve those results and those returns, you need to you need to adapt to that. Yeah. Or maybe not even, you don't even have to enjoy it. You just have to do it. I think that it's only Jerry could say that. And at the same time, I could just say it's very insightful. And I think that it, another way to put this would be is that there's such a great desire to live with narrative. So we want to have a narrative that creates common sense so we can explain the world around us. This is it. We need the narrative to make us feel comfortable to reduce our fear so that we feel as though that we know what's going on. Okay. And in reality is this is that uh, the trend follower is saying is that, that no, we don't need the narrative. We need to just look at our sort of focus in on some key components, such as just what the price is and not worry about trying to fit a narrative to the facts. We just fit the model to the reality that we see. And it's interesting is, is that uh, when you look at this, uh, a global macro trader, for example, he has to have a narrative that's consistent. So I, I like to say if he's going to say either inflation is going up or it's going to go down, and now he's got to b- build a set of consistent trades around the narrative that he set up. And then when you think about it, a lot of his trades are just one single trade. 
he's either you know pro-inflation, anti-inflation, or he believes trend, uh, inflation is going higher or lower. And because he's working on a narrative, everything has to be internally consistent with what he does based on that narrative. Trend follower is exactly the opposite. This is that there is no overriding narrative except for the fact that if trends prices are going higher, I got to be a buyer, and if trends are going lower, uh, a seller. And what you really find is that that you can have trades in a trend following program that are inconsistent with any single narrative. So, for example, you could be long corn and you could be short some other commodity there and and say the inflation story all commodities could go up no i could be long one some commodities it could be short others i could be neutral some others i could be long stocks short bonds long bonds i don't look for consistency of narrative i just look for consistency in behavior on a market by market basis i guess that's why we often refer to it as evidence-based investment we just Look at one thing, and and the only thing that we hold true is the price, and we don't worry a, a, about the rest. Even though it would be nice sometimes to have the narrative as well when you deal with investors, at least. But leave that as it may. I want to bring up one of my own topics as well because I just thought it was interesting for people who may not be aware of this, and then we can go back to any of your points if if we have time for that. But just something that we often get asked, and I'm sure you you have as well, Mark, many times, and that is when is the best time to invest in in trend following? And and people, I think, has a natural bias towards trying to time their investments as well, and so on and so forth. Of course, we and I talked about it last week that actually, if you miss the best periods of of, of, of um, performance in any investment, you actually risk losing quite a lot of the compound return. But then I was also thinking about, okay, so what is the best time to uh, invest? And of course, our founder, Bill Don, he would always say in the office that the best time to invest in trend following is at the bottom of a drawdown. And the second best time is today. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. But in terms of trying to visualize this, I did a little study and we do this actually on a regular basis on our side where we look at some extreme starting points. So if we had to build the optimal portfolio, and even though I'm not a big fan of it, but we do use the sharp ratio to say, okay, this is the optimal allocation. And we can only choose between stocks, bonds, and and our own trend-following strategy. And in this case, I've used the MSCI World uh, to represent equities, and I've used the FTSE World Government Bond Index to to represent fixed income, and then I have our own trend-following program. So I wanted to see what happens actually with the allocation to trend following, or in this case to uh, to done, if you started at extreme starting points. And for me, two extreme starting points could be, for example, before the tech bubble, when equities were at their highest, or right after the tech bubble ended, when equities were at their lowest. So in other words, in September 2000, or in October 2002. For me, that would be two very extreme starting points to build a diversified portfolio based on these three assets. And it turns out that if you did that, the allocation to trend or to done in this case, if you started before the tech bubble, and the data goes up until the end of April, by the way, I should say, would have been 10%. 10% would have been the best allocation to trend, 22% MSCI world and 68% government bonds. If you instead started at the end of the bubble, so October 2002, the allocation to done would have been almost the same, 
33% to MSCI World. So equity is clearly uh, a bigger allocation because now you're buying the low. And then the reduction really comes uh, from the government bond. So interestingly enough, to me at least, I see some very consistent allocation to trend in this case. But I wanted to go a little bit further and say, okay, let's that's a sample size of one and not that we have many crises to really do a sample size of, but another sample size could be if I said, okay, let's do the great housing bubble from 2007 to 2009. So again, same experiment, same actors. So if you were wanting the highest sharp ratio allocation before the housing bubble or the great financial crisis, whatever people call it, you would need a 22% allocation to trend following, a 31% allocation to MSCI World, and a 47% allocation to the World Government Bond Index. Now, if you started just after the crisis, so in March of 2009, your allocation to trend gets smaller, so it's 14% in this case. Your allocation to equities grows significantly. It goes up to 53%, and your allocation to bonds gets reduced quite a bit down to 33%. So my point is just that when I look at these things, it certainly supports my own view that a core allocation, because again, you shouldn't try and time it, a core allocation to trend based on the evidence, at least again, is pretty consistent. Um, it's not It's not 2%, it's not 5%. It's more in the range of 10 to 20% roughly. That's what it seems to suggest based on this very small sample size that I put together. But still, I think the message at least that I try to communicate to people is that you just need to have it. It needs to be reasonable, but it needs to be there at all time. And it doesn't then really matter over the long run whether you started this month or next month, the important part is that you start. And I would agree that it's a long-term strategy. If you're an investor, you have to view this as a long-term strategy, a long-term holding, and there may not be a specific good time. If you're a long-only investor, clearly is this is that that if you have a long-run upward performance, then there's probably more likely that there's going to be some kind of revision to the mean or there's going to be some type of reversal. The trend followers' performance in the past doesn't tell us anything about what may happen in the future for the simple reason is that you're constantly adjusting your positions in your portfolio. You could be you could be long for a while, then you take put on short positions that could still show up in greater performance, yet you flipped a number of key positions. So it's hard to say that there is a way to time, albeit I probably would say that generally is that if you're a more active investor, buying in at drawdowns seems to do better for trend follower because you've cleared out a lot of positions. You're probably setting up new positions. There's probably a change in regime and that, that occurred, which caused a large drawdown in, for some reason. So I think that if you're if you were an active person in trend following, you might say I want to look in buy it and draw down. If you're a long-term investor, it doesn't matter, and that the allocation is probably going to be fairly stable as what you've shown, and that you should just put an allocation into trend following, not worry about it. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And of course, it's also interesting that some of the research being done by uh, a few. Other firms, uh, when it comes to building, say, the 100-year portfolio, um, meaning trying to make an allocation that would actually do well for you if you couldn't change it for 100 years, 
there is actually an allocation to trend of, I think, 19%. So quite similar to the allocation number that I've gotten in these two smaller uh, sample size studies in terms of a period. Anyways, just a little bit of an interesting fact. Any other topics you want to bring up today, Mark, we've, from your list that you felt, yeah, this is really topical, let's just uh, get that in? We've got a lot of ground today <laughs> as I'm looking at the clock. How do we chew up so much time so quickly? <laughs> and we haven't even, there are a lot of topics we haven't haven't covered. So I guess we're just going to have to do this again next month. <laughs> we'll have to do that again next month. Luckily, we will. Now, in terms of performance, I mentioned that it has been a little bit of a rocky couple of uh, weeks for trend followers. But I think actually the industry is holding up pretty well. So as of Thursday evening, and I think Friday was kind of a mixed, slightly positive day, I would imagine, for most CTAs. But the beta 50 index is still up 1.18%, 6.28% for the year. The SOCGEN CTA index up 69 bips for the month and up 6.35% for the year. The trend index up 1.29% for the month, up 8.3% for the year. Short-term traders index, though, that's down for the month, 0.65, up 1.49% for the year. As I mentioned, my trend barometer is a little bit soft. 39 is the reading right now. And if we look at the traditional markets, equities, the MSCI world is pretty flat this month, up 15 basis points, but it's still up 9.4% for the year. And the government bond index is down, I think, a few basis points so far this month. I've already shared a couple of resources, Lacey Hunt interview, David Rosenberg interview, if you want to get more into the deflation-inflation discussion. Is there anything else you want to bring up, Mark, before we call it a wrap? I think that you mentioned something we did not cover today, but I, I think that people should follow this reverse repo issue. Yes. I think that it gets into what I call the uh, the arcane plumbing of central banking. But there's a lot going on here, and yeah. you will be seeing, I, I think for a lot of your listeners, you'll be see, hearing a lot more about reverse repo in the next month. And I think that this is uh, something that might actually drive some policy decisions. So watch for the plumbing. Uh, we often talk about you know, monetary liquidity. Liquidity only uh, can only be effective if it has good plumbing. <laughs> so, And you got to watch where the leakage is coming. So watch the plumbing closely. Yes, that's a good point, actually. And I think you're right. I, I did. I have mentioned it, started mentioning it maybe two, three weeks ago that there was something funky going on with that thing when it passed the 100 billion mark out of nowhere. Good point to bring that up. Let's all get, uh, I'm sure we will get educated on, on that term, reverse repo. Of course, we always encourage you to help our little podcast grow by go and leaving a rating and review in iTunes. That would be fantastic. Also be aware nowadays that the podcast platforms have changed now. So this is why I shouldn't anymore say you should subscribe to the podcast. You should follow the podcast because apparently subscription is now something that's going to cost you money. But at least at this point in time, it is completely free for you to listen to our rambling every week. Next week, I will be joined by another rambler, which is Rob. And he is super fun and he's always very educational. I'm looking forward to that. Please send your questions, as always, to, email, to info at toptradersunplugged.com. We'll do our best to get through all of those. And, of course, you can follow Mark's work on his blog, on Twitter, and you can follow me on Twitter as well. From Mark and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. Until next time, take care of yourself 
and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.